We are a couple days away from the incredible festival of Shavuos, the day that marks the giving of the Torah. And of course, there's an ancient custom going back decades, centuries, and millennia to stay up the whole night of Shavuos and to be so eager to receive the Torah or to reenact the reception of the Torah. And we study Torah the whole night, and that is a ubiquitous custom. And in that spirit, I thought I would present you some ideas of what we could talk about on Shavuos. Uh, in the past, I've actually gone through what we're going to do today on Shavuos. It turned out to be a very engaging conversation. And it's going to be oriented a little bit differently than what we typically do. Typically, we have like one idea that we develop and we, you know, we initiate it and we ask some questions and we resolve it. The focus here is more going to be on the questions and the subject matter. You know, there is a, a theory that I heard and I really like, and that is that the importance of questions and how they awaken they awaken curiosity and they create gaps, they create dissonance, they create some sort of discomfort in your brain and that awakens your brain to do work. And the brain that is active, the brain that's doing the work, actually is the one that does the learning. So if you have a great question, even though it doesn't resolve itself on its own, that's a portal to activate the superpower that's balancing on your shoulders and to develop an idea, to think about an idea, and to activate the mind. And there's no night, really, that we need to activate the mind more than when it's three in the morning and the coffee is worn off and you're exhausted. But if there's some really interesting subject, a really interesting question that uh, you can discuss, it can be uh, – it can open up your mind and it can make the night and the study more interesting. So I prepared six questions on Shavuos. And we're going to talk about the questions. We'll give some answers as well. But I think it's just an interesting like overview of a lot of the ideas and the themes of Shavuos and even the events, of course, that Shavuos marks. You know, we know the story of the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Uh, it's going to be interesting, I think. And we're not going to spend too much time on every subject. Ask the question. Explain the question. Maybe give an answer or two or five and move on to the next subject. So that's the idea. And let's begin. We'll start with something really easy. Shavuos is called Zman Matan Torah Sena. The time of the giving of the Torah. Every festival has a moniker, has a nickname. We know Pesach, that's the time of our freedom. Cherusenu. Sukos, Sukos is the time of our joy. It's the time of joy. We're after Yom Kippur, we're cleansed, we're joyous. Shavuos is the time that we reenact the giving of the Torah because it's the exact day, the sixth day of the month of Sivan, the exact day that we got the Torah 3,300 some odd years ago. So this event, the nation coalesces around the mountain and they experience the Ten Commandments. That is the time that we got the Torah. But here's the question. What did we actually get? We didn't get the written Torah. Because the written Torah, we only got at the end of those 40 years. The Gemara tells us in the book of Gittin, on page 60, that there's a debate. When did Moshe write it? Did he write it incrementally? Did he write it to big batches? But everyone agrees that the written Torah was only delivered to the Jewish people at the very end of Moshe's life. There was a debate. Who wrote the last eight verses? Was that written by Moshe with tears? Was that finished by Joshua? Because the last eight verses talk about the death of Moshe. So Moshe, how could he write it if he's dead? 
And there are two opinions in the Gemara. I think it's in Baba Basar. But regardless, the written Torah happened much later. The oral Torah, which is the actual laws, the applications of the laws, well, that was given over the course of 40 years. Some of it was given at Sinai. Some of it was given in the plains of Moab. But not on this one day. On this one day, Moshe, he gave us, we got the Ten Commandments. He didn't give it to us, but God said the first two commandments to the nation. And then Moshe said the final eighth, and God amplified Moshe's voice. But we have ten mitzvos, which is a nice percentage. It's, what, two, three percent of all the mitzvos. Maybe if you count the 14 mitzvos that are included in the Ten Commandments, you have a, a little bit more. But the absolute majority, the bulk of the mitzvos, we did not get on Shavuos. So how do we consider this day the day of the giving of the Torah? We got 1%, 2%, a very small percentage of the Torah. Now, perhaps you may say, well, Rabbi Wolby, we didn't get the whole Torah on Shavuos, but we started to get the mitzvot of the Torah. That's not true as well. There are mitzvot that, of course, happened or were told initially to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. There were mitzvot that were commanded to us in Egypt, like the laws of Pesach, etc., Passover, the laws of matzah, and the pastoral sacrifice. And even in the city of Morah, where they arrived to 10 days after the Exodus, they got three more mitzvos. They got a down, down payment, a deposit on all the mitzvos. So 50 days after the Exodus, they get to Sinai and they get 10 commandments. But why is this the time of the giving of the Torah? That's the question. I'm going to give you five superb answers. But again, these are subject matters that can be expanded and discussed at greater length. So the easiest answer is, yes, we didn't get all the mitzvot, but what happened the day after the Exodus? The day, I'm sorry, what happened the day after the sign of Revelation? The Torah tells us, this is in Exodus chapter 24, because the story of the Sinai Revelation is divided up into a few places in the Torah. Primarily, it's in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. And then it kind of transitions, it segues to talk about other things. And then it revisits the Sinai Revelation in chapter 24 of the book of Exodus. And it tells us that the next day, Moshe appoints Aaron and Hur to watch the nation, and he goes up the mountain. And the objective is to go up the mountain to get the actual details of the Torah. So when did this, like, when did this start? Moshe started to get the mitzvot and thereby to convey it to us on this day. And therefore, that is what we are celebrating. That's one answer. There's a second answer. Really, the next two answers are, are very similar. And that is that the Ten Commandments are not just any ordinary mitzvot. Of course, no mitzvot is ordinary. But they contain with, within them a concentrated version, a digest of all of Torah. In fact, the Maharsha tells us, and this is really an idea that makes a lot of sense, all of the mitzvos are really included in the first two commandments. We got two commandments from God directly, and the final eight we got from Moshe. God amplified it, but we got from Moshe. The first two we got from God, because that really contains all of Torah. Believe in God, I am the Lord your God, who took care of the land of Egypt. And don't do idolatry. And every time you do a mitzvah, a positive mitzvah, a performative mitzvah, that is you acting in one detail of believing in God. And when you, whenever you with, withhold, you refrain from doing something which is a prohibition, a prohibitive mitzvah, 
And that is you living up to not doing something which is against the will of God. That's a detail. There are two principles. Don't disobey God. Do obey God. And the details are fleshed out. And therefore, the first two gave us a concentrated version. We got the whole Torah. It took us a while to get the details, to get the explanation, to flesh out the details. But that is one answer. Well, the first two commandments we got directly from God, that is all of Torah. A second answer, and this is an idea that's mentioned in the Midrash, Rashi even quotes it. The ten commandments contain 620 letters. And we know there are 613 mitzvos in the Torah. And there are seven rabbinic mitzvos. So there are a total of 620 mitzvos. And each letter of the Ten Commandments corresponds to one mitzvah. And therefore, really, the Ten Commandments in general are representative of the entire Torah. Moreover, we know that Talmud tells us in the book of Matros on page 24a that the goal, the objective of all of the mitzvos are to create faith. Emuna, faith, faith. What does faith mean? The answer is that it can mean a lot of different things. I can have faith in God. I can believe in God. And that's like an idea. It's a theoretical idea. It's an abstract idea. And I live my life in total disregard to this principle. I can have real faith when it becomes instinctual. It becomes natural. It becomes inborn. It colors my every move, my every thought, my every deed, my every word that I say. Everything I do is guided by that. Which one is the goal? If Amuna is the goal of all the mitzvahs, which one of those kinds of Amuna? And I will give a little shout out in the book that I wrote upon a 10-string tarp. I spent several chapters talking about the various kinds of Amuna. So the answer is that the goal is instinctive Amuna, where the Amuna becomes instinctive, where you just interface with the world you interact with the world, your worldview, your Weltanschauung is guided by the fact that there is a creator who gave you Torah. That is the goal. When you start off, Emunah is a theoretical idea. The objective of all 613 mitzvos is to make the spiritual real and palpable. And to result after that whole process to a worldview that is dominated by your creator. That continuum where you start off where you start off with like theoretical, intellectual, cognitive amuna, and you result in real amuna, in instinctive amuna, that is the storyline of the Ten Commandments. You start off with an idea, I am the Lord your God. And you end off, thou shall not covet. How do you not covet the nice, wonderful exciting things that your friend has. The only way to do it is if you have instinctive amuna, where you instinctively interface with the world with the knowledge and the recognition that the Almighty gives you what you need, gives your friend what your friend needs, doesn't give you what he gives to your friend because you don't need that, and therefore you don't covet it. The greatest expression 
of someone who has real Muna, someone who has the Muna, the belief in God, fully deployed within them, is when they don't covet. It actually changes their desires. They seek to desire things that the Almighty apportioned to others. And thus, the Ten Commandments are the storyline of the Torah. This is where you start. You start with a, an idea, I'm blowing God. It's a theoretical idea. And the end, at the end of the, the Ten Commandments, which is really representative of the end of our journey through mitzvos, we have so integrated the idea of Amuna into our life, we cease to covet that that belongs to others. And finally, the fifth answer to this question is told us in the Torah, in the run-up to the Ten Commandments, the Revelation at Sinai, God tells Moshe, Behold, this is in Exodus 19.9, Behold, I will come to you in the thickness of a cloud. I'm going to appear to you. And I'm going to speak to you. And the nation will hear me talking to you. The nation will be privy to this prophecy. And then they will forever believe in you. We will forever believe in Moshe. The Jewish people are going to receive the Torah and it's going to come to us from God via the conduit, which is Moshe. And if we are reasonable people and Moshe tells us not to plant our field every seven years, oh, and just rely on God, he'll give you a bumper crop. It's a reasonable thing to say, well, maybe Moshe's making up this whole nonsense and maybe we shouldn't risk our lives to listen to Moshe. Moshe tells us, oh, if someone drives a car on Shabbat, you have to execute them because they're violating the Shabbos. That sounds kind of radical. If it comes from God, okay, we have to understand it. But that, if it comes from God, it comes from God. He's the creator. He has the rights and he has the authority and he has the wisdom to make such decisions. If it comes from Moshe... If it's man-made, we're not interested. God tells us via Moshe to give 10% of all of our produce to charity. Tithing. That's a lot. How do we do that? If it comes from God, okay, we got to do it. He'll give us extra. Don't worry about it. If it comes from Moshe, no. Every mitzvah, every mitzvah. We wear tefillin on our heads. It looks kind of silly. We have the mezuzah on our doorposts. It's very expensive. Got to eat kosher food. Shake the lulav. You can feel kind of foolish. All these things that we do, we're doing it only because we're trusting Moshe that he's telling us the unadulterated, unfiltered word of God. We have to believe that Moshe is legit. We cannot have any doubts into the veracity of Moshe's bona fides as a prophet. And therefore, the sign of revelation the Torah tells us It's not about the content of what we're going to hear at Sinai. It's about the verification of Moshe as a bona fide, legitimate prophet. The vetting of Moshe. Moshe, of course, did amazing miracles at the Exodus. Amazing miracles. But that's not we trust, that's not why we trust him. We trust him and we continue to trust him 3,300 plus years later because a whole nation, a nation of millions of people, heard prophecy alongside Moshe, where God was talking to Moshe, and we heard, and we survived to tell a tale, and there's no doubt in our hearts 
that Moshe is legit. And therefore, when he tells us 40 years later the laws of Yibum, Leverite marriages, how to make a divorce document, all these things, very technical stuff. Did he make it up? We know for sure. Moshe has been vetted in a way that no other prophet has been vetted. There were millions of people there to verify it. Sinai was the time of the giving of the Torah because it was the verification and the proof of the legitimacy and the veracity of Moshe as a prophet. Question one is behind us. Let's move on to question number two. Question number two surrounds the crown-carrying capacity of angels. Angels can carry crowns, the Talmud tells us. However, however, there is a discrepancy between one episode of angels carrying crowns and a second episode of angels carrying crowns. Let's explain. The Talmud in the book of Shabbos, page 888, tells us that when the Jewish people said, we will do and we will listen. 600,000 angels, ministering angels of God, descended, each one carrying two crowns. And they came to the Jews and they installed upon their head each Jew, each one of the 600,000 Jewish souls received two crowns. One for Nasa we will do, one for Nishma we will listen. Every angel is capable of carrying two crowns, ostensibly. After the sin of the golden calf 40 years later, those crowns were taken away, were removed, were uninstalled. Says the Talmud, 1.2 million prosecuting angels came down and removed those crowns. Each one removed one. The Talmud continues that Moshe earned those crowns. Moshe earned not only his own crowns, he didn't lose his crowns because he didn't partake in the sin of the golden calf, but he also earned the crowns of the Jews. Continues the Talmud of the future. In Olam the righteous will sit with their crowns in their head. What crowns will they have in their heads? Those same crowns that we had at Sinai. At Sinai, the nation achieved an apex, a level akin to Olam And therefore, we had those crowns then. We lost them. If we get back to that state of Olam we will once again have those crowns. And the Talmud concludes... Then when they said Nasev God was so surprised. How did they know this? This is what the angels say. This is a secret only known to the angels. So this is, a very, of course, a very famous motto of our people. Nasev we will do and we will listen. When the nation was told, hey, you want to have this Torah? God made this offer, this bargain. The nation didn't ask what's inside of it. They did not ask to read the fine print. They didn't have their lawyers look it over. They said, we're in. We're going to do it. We're committed to it even before we know what's in it, even before we listen, before we hear the details. And when they said that, God said, oh, this is what the angels said. This is an amazing thing. You get crowns. 600,000 angels each carrying two crowns installs the crowns. When they send the golden calf, they lose those crowns. But those 1.2 million crowns are removed by 1.2 million prosecuting angels. And of course, Moshe will get it after the Jewish people lose it. In Olam Abba, we'll get them. But here's the question. 
the crown-carrying capacity of an angel apparently changes. Why does it take double the amount of angels to remove the crowns as it takes to install them? Interesting question, and we're going to offer some answers to this question. One answer, this is an important idea, of course, can be elaborated upon. One answer is that God's reward always outweighs his punishment. The Talmud tells us by a factor of 500, God preserves reward for 2,000 generations, and he punishes for a maximum of four generations. Says the Talmud, some basic math, 2,000 reward for punishment. That tells us that God is much more compassionate and rewarding than punishing by a factor of 500. And therefore, it will be assumed, or we can extend this idea to say, well, the angels that are in charge of rewarding are going to be more capable, more able, more able-bodied, if that can be used, more able-angeled, than the punishing angels. And therefore, you have a rewarding angel, they're going to have the ability to carry even two crowns, so muscular these angels, whereas the other angels who are there to punish, they're feebler, they're weaker, they're not strong, and all they can handle is one crown. That is an idea that has been suggested. The Ben Yehoyada, he gives three somewhat related answers. So yes, a question, how come an angel is able to install two, to carry two, to install two, but not to remove two? So the first thing he says is that when they were placed upon the heads of the Jewish people, it was the angels from the right side, and they're stronger than the angels on the left side. Very Kabbalistic. And then he adds another twist to this, which again is very advanced. But he said, when you have a good angel, even the left hand of the angel is like a right hand, can do good. Whereas you have a bad angel, doesn't work with the right hand, only works with the left hand. And this is a Kabbalistic idea that appears in many places. So for example, by the splitting of the sea, there is a verse that talks about the right hand of God twice. And Rashi tells us, when the Jewish people do the will of God, it's like he has two right hands, two rewarding hands. Of course, this is anthropomorphic, and we don't really know what this means, but that's another idea here. Of course, this is something we can discuss at greater length. And finally, he says another idea, which I found to be very interesting. The Jewish people ceased to obey the Torah with the golden calf. And therefore, they lost the crown of we will do. But what do we say every night? We say Shema, Na'asev and Nishma. Shema, we will listen. The Jewish people are always committed to listening. The only flaw, this is an advanced idea, the only flaw that we had with the golden calf was that we stopped to do. But to listen, we, we always listen. And as a result of that, it created a fissure between we will do and we will listen. Because we're going to listen, that's still true. We're going to do, not so much. Look at our behavior. So those two crowns have been split into two. And we can only have both crowns. We can't have just one. So we have to lose those crowns. But because they're now, they're, they've been separated, 
There is a principle that angels can only perform one task. This is an idea that we find everywhere it talks about angels. We find this idea that an angel is like an isolated will of God and he can only do one thing. What that means, I don't know. I'm not an expert in angelography. It was not uh, part of my curriculum really in the yeshiva. But that's an idea. Rashi tells it to us a few times. It's an idea that's well-established, well-sourced. An angel can only do one task. If you have two tasks, you need two angels. And therefore, to install those crowns, because the Na'asev and were bound together, it was really like one thing. It was one task. The Jewish people, by ceasing to do, created a, a separation broke apart the do and the listen, and therefore you have to remove the pieces, and there's two pieces, you need two angels. Very nice idea. Thus concludes question number two, but subject number two, this idea of the of the angels coming in and installing the crowns and removing them, the different number of angels, very interesting from the Talmud in the book of Shabbos on page 88a. Question three. What did it say on the tablets? We know that... On Shavuos, the day that the original Shavuos, Jewish people hears, we hear together the nation, we hear first the first two from God, the subsequent eight of the Ten Commandments from Moshe, amplified by God. The next day Moshe goes up the mountain, he'll be back in 40 days. At the end of the 40 days, God gives him the tablets, the first of the tablets, tablets that were doomed. He goes down, he meets Joshua, we know the story. And uh, they see the revelry of the golden calf, and he shatters those tablets. And he invests tremendous effort to save the Jewish people. God wants to destroy them, start from scratch. Eventually, God says, okay, I'm going to give you a second chance. On the first day of Elul, the whole month of Elul, he goes up for a third time. Because in the interim, he went up a second time to gain forgiveness. He goes up a third time, spends an additional 40 days This time, he brings up with him a set of stone tablets, and God inscribes on the stone tablets what was written on the first tablets that Moshe had shattered. Eventually, both of those tablets, both the actual tablets, second set of tablets that were not destroyed, and the first set of tablets that were shattered were both placed in the ark, in the Aron, that was built subsequently. But here's the question. What did it say on the luchos, on the tablets? Well, it's the Ten Commandments. We know that. The verse says it explicitly. That on the tablets, it were the ten, the ten themes that God had said, the ten utterances, the ten commandments. Well, what are the Ten Commandments? So if you look in the Torah, you'll find the Ten Commandments in two locations in the Torah. In the book of Exodus, chapter 20, and in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moshe retells the story, of course, in the, the Deuteronomy, the repetition of the Torah, he goes through, he revisits the Sinai revelation and talks about the Ten Commandments. But if you look at the Fourth Commandment, in the first, the first time it's told to us, in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, it says the words, Zachar, remember, the day of Shabbos, to sanctify it. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, it says a different word, not zachor, it says shamor, guard, observe the Shabbos day to sanctify it. So which one was it? Did it say shamor and zachor? So if you look at Rashi, whenever we have a question, we always look at Rashi, the first place to look at, 
you look at Rashi commentary, both in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy Devarim, in both, both instances he points out the uh, discrepancy. He says, wait a minute. How come here it says Zachar in Exodus and there it says Shomar in Deuteronomy? That's the question he asks in, es- in Exodus. And in Deuteronomy, that's the same question. How come here it says Shomar and there it says Zachar? What's going on? And in both cases, he gives us the same answer. He says, Sinai, this was prophecy. This is not just ordinary communication. This is prophecy. So God said, Shamor v'zachor b'dibborechad. He said them in one utterance, one speech, in one sentence. He said both Shamor and Zachor. Both two words, the different words. Today, Rashi even says, we can't say it, we can't hear it, we can't process it. But this is prophecy. A supernatural dimension. A higher level, a higher plane. At Sinai, during this prophecy, these two words were said together. Wow, amazing. But here's the question. That explains what was said at Sinai. But what was actually etched into the luchos, into the, into the tablets? Was it Zahar as featured in the book of Exodus? Or was it Shamar as featured in the book of Deuteronomy? It's okay, like humans, ordinary humans can hear, can say, can process two words at once. That's a prophetic, higher level, dimensional communication. I get that. But if you looked at the luchos, you looked at the tablets, what did it say? Now you may say, well, Rabbi, you just told the answer yourself. There were two sets of tablets. And the first one, it said Zachor, and the second one said Shamor. You just told me there were two sets of tablets. One of them was shattered. One of them got inscribed upon it. Maybe that's the answer. Is that a good answer? Is that a good answer? It's not. Here's why. When God tells Moshe, okay, I've forgiven the Jewish people. Come bring up a second set of tablets and I will inscribe on those second set of tablets what was written in the first tablets. He says explicitly, I will inscribe on the second tablets the same thing that I, that I had inscribed on the first set of tablets, Sheshibarta, that you shattered. So we have a verse explicitly in Scripture telling us that no, the content, the words of the first and second tablets were identical. So which one was it? This is a great mystery. I wrote in my newsletter a very long and persuasive essay about this. And I proved conclusively that it was Shamor that it had said on the tablets, both the first and the second set of tablets. And if you want to read the evidence, you have to subscribe to my newsletter and send me an email, rabbiwalbajim.com. Because it's too good. It's just too good to say over on the podcast. I just can't say it over. It needs some visuals. I'll send you the essay if you would like. That is question number three. Let's move on to question number four. This is an interesting one. So you told me, you told me, you told me that God gave Moshe a first set of tablets. And he went down the mountain. He shattered those said tablets. And then he intervened, he prayed, he went up a second time, he went up a third time, got the second set of tablets. And eventually, 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 you told me that both sets of tablets, the first and the second set of tablets, were both put in a box. Which box? The Aron, the Ark, 
the nested set of boxes, gold, wood, gold, covered by the cherubs on top, placed in the Holy of Holies, that's where they were stored. Fantastic. But what was the plan? God gave Moshe the first set of tablets, and there was no box. There was no box. So what would have happened had the Jewish people not done the golden calf, which again, we, we believe that we have free will, there is a counterfactual world in which they didn't do it because they chose to do it. Why they did it, separate question. But they did the golden calf. But what would have happened had they not done the golden calf? Where would Moshe have put those tablets? What was the plan? There was no box. It's only sub- subsequently where the Jewish people did this in the golden calf. They got the second set of tablets. And by the way, the commentaries tell us that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, as being an isolated point where you can connect to God better than any place in the world, that was only a result of the sin of the golden calf. Absent the sin of the golden calf, wherever you were in the world, you could have a direct relationship with God. It's only because of the sin of the golden calf that God said, okay, I'm going to have just one one point, so to speak, in history, or in, the, in the world. One point in the geography where that that's where you can feel the palpable existence of God. So what would have been absent the golden calf? Where would the tablets have been stored? And the answer, I'm convinced, is that it would not be stored anywhere. It only needed to be hidden due to the sin of the golden calf. It would have been out and about. It would have been revealed. Perhaps, perhaps it would have floated in the air. It seems like uh, there are some citations, there are some sources, very reputable sources that say that. Moshe dropped the tablets. According to one version of the story in the Midrash, they got so heavy because they were godly tablets and they would have been suspended mid-air. On one hand, we're keeping it close to us. On the other hand, it's kind of connected to God. So it's suspended mid-air. There's a force pulling it up, a force pulling it down. It's floating. God says, okay, I'm finished with you. I'm done with you. So Moshe's holding these massive boulders. They just, they fell. They fell and they shattered. That's one version, of course. There's a lot of, a lot of commentary, a lot of literature about what exactly happened. But the plan was for us to have the tablets, not just to have the tablets in theory in a box. That's the hardest place in the world to get it inside. You have to go into Jerusalem and into the temple and into the courtyard and into the sanctuary and into the Holy of Holies and into and into and into and you get to the box and into the box and into the box and multiple boxes. It's hidden like this Russian doll, inside, 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 and you can't really go past, you know, one level, two levels. Even even Aaron can only get to the last level, and he couldn't open up the box. It's hidden. It's hidden. And it wasn't supposed to be like that. And there's a very deep idea here. The golden calf, that terrible blunder of our people, mirrors the sin of Adam. How so? Adam, pre his sin, was this really high level, this otherworldly angelic existence, not even angelic, much higher than the angels. That is what Adam was. And he sinned. 
in the words of our sages, the venom of the serpent was inserted in him and he was reduced. He was diminished. He was, he had his stature lessened. With the revelation at Sinai, the nation had all that venom removed. In the words of the Talmud, the book of Shabbos, page 146, A, this influence, this poison, this venom of the serpent was removed. They were cleansed. They had been restored to Adam before his sin, that level. With the sin of the own calf, they, like Adam before them, were greatly diminished. You'll find a lot of parallels between the sin of the golden calf and Adam's, Adam's sin. Listen to this. The term cherub appears in two contexts in the Torah. Once in the book of Genesis, after Adam is, is evicted, he's booted out of the garden, he wants to go back in. And God installs the flaming, swirling sword upon the door of the of the garden, he can't go in. And he stations cherubs to guard the path, to guard the path of the tree of life. The first time that the words kruvim, or cherubs, appears in the Torah, they are guarding the path of life. And then they appear later on. And what are they? They are these gold figurines of sorts that were etched into the cover of the ark. Again, the cherubs are guarding, are guarding what we had previously. Previously, we would have had access. We would have been around the tree of life, the Torah. Not just the Torah, the ideas of the Torah, but the actual handiwork of God. The tablets etched by God, crafted by God. And we lost it. We still have it, it's still there, but it's guarded by cherubs. But the plan would have been that there wouldn't be any cherubs absent the sin, absent both the sin of Adam and the sin of the Jewish people and the golden calf, we would have gotten beyond those cherubs and we would have been together with the tree of life. Thus concludes question number four, or subject number four. Let's get to number five. The most jarring event, perhaps, in the Torah is the shattering of the tablets at the foot of the mountain. And I'll read to you a Talmud that will knock your socks off. And it'll knock them so far away, you won't be able to find them for a month. You won't believe this Talmud, therefore I'll give you the sources. It's the found, it's found in the Talmud, in the Jerusalem Talmud, in the book of Titus on page 23a. It's talking about Moshe shattering the tablets. And it tells us that the dimensions of the, the tablets were six tvachim, six hand, or whatever those called, a fist, 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 fist lengths, or really four fingers. Six tvachim long and three tvachim wide. And God was handing over the luchos, the tablets, and there was a, there was a transfer that happened where God had the tablets. And then he gave them to Moshe. And in the middle of that, he handed them over to Moshe. This is what the Talmud says. And Moshe was holding two tvachim, two 
finger breaths, not finger breaths, I think it's called hand breaths. Two hand breaths were in the hands of Moshe. And two were in the hands of God. And two in the middle. That was kind of the exact moment of the handing over. And precisely at that moment, that's when the sin of the golden calf happened. And by the way, this may blow your mind a little bit. The only time such a terrible sin could have happened is at a time where such a tremendous high level of connection to God was possible. If we don't have the ability to have such a high level of connection to Hashem, to God, that he's actually, we're holding, so to speak, us, our representative. Moshe is holding the tablets, and God's holding the tablets, and there's two tablets in the middle, and this is the, the moment of the transfer. And that's the closest we've ever been to God as a nation. Only then does the Sahara always equal, always balanced. He's going to be just as strong, and such a terrible, egregious sin can happen precisely only at that moment. Things are always balanced. At that moment, the Jewish people do the terrible sin of the golden calf. And in the middle of this transfer, this happens. And God says, okay, I'm uh, pulling this back. I'm retracting. No deal. Let's retrade. Let's discuss the uh, details again. And God tries to pull this. This is the Talmud. I told you, won't believe, told you you won't believe me about this. This is the Talmud. God tries to remove it from Moshe. Words of the Talmud. Vigavra yado shel Moshe. But Moshe won the arm wrestle. He won the arm wrestle. He overcame with the strength of Moshe's hand. And he snatched them from God. And that's why when Moshe is being eulogized in the Torah, it praises him, Ulechol hayad hachazaka. And for all the strong hand that Moshe did, what strong hand did Moshe have? It's referring to this. Moshe's hand overcame God, whatever that means. What an amazing Talmud. Such a great mystery. God had the luchos in his hand. The Jewish people, and he was handing it to Moshe. The Jewish people do the sin. And God wants to take it back. And Moshe rests it out of God's hand. Moshe insisted, and Moshe prevailed, and that's why he had a strong hand. A stunning, stunning teaching in the Talmud. Of course, it raises all sorts of theological questions. How is it possible for man to overcome God? That could only happen only if God allows that to happen. Of course. But listen to this. Moshe is obviously aware of what's happening below. He pulls the tablets. He walks down the mountain. And remember, he was very, he was very insistent on getting those tablets. God wanted to pull them away. And Moshe insisted, no, I gotta take it. He really wants those tablets. He gets down the mountain, he meets Joshua, they have a conversation. They go back to the camp. They see the revelry of the golden calf. And those tablets that he just rested out of God's hands, he throws them on the ground and he shatters them at the foot of the mountain. So I don't get it, Moshe. Do you really want them? Or do you not want them? Why did Moshe bring it down just to shatter them? He's so insistent to extract it from God. And then he has it. He has it. You want it so badly. And then he break it. If you feel the nation doesn't deserve it, God, you're right. The nation is not worthy. Keep it. That is legitimate. If you're going to insist that the nation is deserving of it, you pull it out. Okay, so then you give it to the nation. Why break it? 
Why is he insisting on bringing the tablets down from heaven and still insisting on shattering them at the foot of the mountain? What's going on here in Moshe's head? What's Moshe's calculus? Now, to make this thing even more interesting, we know that this story of Moshe shattering the tablets is one of the crowning achievements of Moshe's life. In the very last verse of the Torah, this is the eulogy of Moshe in chapter 34 of Deuteronomy. The verse says, Ulechol hayad hachazaka, for the straight hand, for the strong hand, and the great might, Asher asa Moshe Yisrael, that Moshe did to the eyes of all of Israel. And Rashi says, what did Moshe do before the eyes of all of Israel? That he was inspired to shatter the tablets. Moshe says, I shattered the tablets before the eyes of Israel. And therefore it says that Moshe did the great thing, the great wonders before the eyes of all of Israel. It's referring to him shattering the tablets. Moshe had a lot of accomplishments. His uh, biography is just studded with great accomplishments. And what towers above it all? He shattered the tablets, the tablets that he pulled out of God's hands in the words of the Talmud. What is going on? This is a good question, and there are many, many answers. I will tell you that I once asked this on a Parsha podcast. Did you know that I have a Parsha podcast? Parsha podcast. And not this past year, but in the past, we've done a segment at the end of the show called A and Q, Answers and Questions, where I ask a question and I solicit answers from the listeners. This particular question, I asked it in the Parsha podcast. And one guy, a friend of ours named Adam, submitted eight different answers to this question. So there's a lot to talk about. But some of the ideas that were shared about this particular question. So one answer is, is that something, something had to be shattered. There was a sin here of such magnitude that this just demanded, demanded something be broken. It was either the nation that was going to be shattered or it was the tablets that were going to be shattered. And Moshe, in his love and benevolence for the Jewish people, in his commitment as a shepherd of the nation, he said, I'm going to take the tablets and shatter the tablets because that will be sufficient punishment for the nation. They will endure. If I don't take the tablets, I leave the tablets here. Something needs to be broken and the only thing left here to break is the nation. And therefore, he forced, so to speak, God's hands, grabbed those tablets. He knew he was going to shatter them. He shatters the tablets, but he spares the nation. That's an idea that was shared. A second idea that was shared is that Moshe knew the nation needed to be saved. And just like a defibrillator, sometimes the way to start the heart is to stop it. To stop it. To shock it. Stop it. Reach rock bottom. And then you could restart. And I said, yeah. And therefore, he had to do something really dramatic to, to, to kind of catch their attention and to shake him awake. And only then can it be fixed. But an interesting question. 
the calculus of Moshe, and specifically that this is heralded as Moshe's greatest achievement. And that's just really interesting where we try to, we try to figure out what exactly is Moshe thinking? What is he doing? And why is this so special? And perhaps one way to help figure that out is to study this angle of it that Moshe is taking it from God. He has a strong hand taking it from God. And finally, question number six. The festival of Shavuos is on the sixth day of the month of Sivan. We have six questions. Six questions. Vayer Vayvokar Yom Hashishi. The verse says in Genesis, the sixth day. Every day was day one, day two, day three, day four, the sixth day. Why is it the sixth day? So the Talmud tells us, all of Genesis hinges upon Sinai, hinges upon the sixth day. Not the sixth day of creation, but the sixth day of Sivan with the Jewish people accept the Torah. All of creation is dependent upon Torah. And therefore it is Hashishi, the sixth day, because this is the actual day where Genesis is completed. The world is great, but it's imperfect, absent Torah. So six is an important number. Let's get to question number six. This one is a little bit of a wild card. The Talmud tells us that the great Rava, who is the name that appears most frequently in the Torah, in the Talmud, he was studying very intensely. And he was totally oblivious to everything around him. And he had his hand jammed under his leg. And he wasn't even noticing what he was doing, but he was bleeding profusely. And because he was so engrossed in his Torah study, he just didn't notice it. And then there was a heretic, a Sadducee, who witnessed this. And the Sadducee said to him, you guys are just an impetuous people. You are impetuous. At Sinai, you said, we'll do what we'll listen. Who says that? Are you going to sign away your rights before you know what you're signing? Sure, sign, 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 sign. Yes, 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 yes. Accept, 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 accept. What are you doing? You're impetuous. Got to read the details. Read the fine script. And look at this Rava. He's studying Torah so diligently, so intensely. So assiduously, he's totally oblivious of the world around him. You haven't learned your lesson. You're still the same impetuous nation that you were at Sinai. That's the Talmud. Again, the book of Shabbos, page 88a, going into 88b. The same Talmud talks about God taking the mountain, turning it upside down, threatening the nation. The same Talmud that talks about Moshe going up to heaven, having to negotiate with angels. The same Talmud talks about the nation receiving crowns at Sinai. All the, not all, but most of the Talmud's citations about the Sinai revelation are found in the book of Shabbos, page 88. Starts at 87, goes 88, 89, a few pages in the Talmud. But it brings the story of Rava, Rava's intense study, and the Sadducee linking the intense study of Rava to the nation's impetuosity and accepting the Torah without knowing the details. And the question is, what is the connection? Rava, you could say, is a bit foolish. He's uh, he's like a 
the absent-minded professor. He's just so intensely involved. Doesn't even notice what he's doing. What he's doing. He's behaving so silly. He's bleeding. Doesn't even notice it. You could say he's a fool. He's oblivious to his pain. But what does this have to do with we will do and we will listen? Why is Rava exhibiting the same behavior that the Jewish people exhibited at Sinai? They don't seem to be connected at all. One seems to be an act of faith. We trust God. Give us the Torah. We're committed. We'll do it. And then we'll figure out the details. Okay, that's an act of faith. Rabbi seems to be so involved and engrossed in Torah study. What is it, how is there an act of faith here? And the Talmud connects those two. There is a postscript to the story of what Rav responded to him. But what is the connection between what Rav is doing and what the nation did at Sinai? So I think there's a very deep idea here. You know, we view, or we could view what the nation said, we will do, we will listen, as being very naive, very foolish. But of course, when you get a new phone or a new app or you sign a waiver, we had the Akiva's graduation this week. So they went on a graduation trip and they went to boating and they went to urban air and all these places and the parents had to sign waivers. And it's really long. I'm not reading it. It's like 10,000 words. I, I just scroll down to the bottom, hit accept. We do that all the time. No one actually reads the fine print. Are you going to accept the cookies? Sure. I like chocolate chip cookies. I like oatmeal cookies. You just accept, 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 accept. Why? Because you understand that if someone else did the work, Apple wouldn't do this to you, Google wouldn't do this to you, uh, there was read course, someone must have read it. We can kind of trust the system that you, you're not signing away your life and your money and your, and your freedom and everything when you click accept. We understand that. If we rely on these companies, of course we should rely on God. They might his credibility. And his reliability should exceed the trust that we have in any other thing. And therefore, it makes a lot of sense to accept his gift before we inspect it. Oh, let me unpack it to find what's in this gift. And then I'll see if I accept it. No, God wants to give you a gift. You can trust him. But at a deeper level, Rava is studying Torah with such deep intensity, such total focus on the Torah. All of his brain, all of his neurons, all of his synapses, they're all focusing 100% on the subject at hand. So much so that there's no room in his brain for anything else. So when you're bleeding, you're in pain, part of your brain is awake to that. There's a message sent to your brain. Oh, you got to watch out. There's danger. Avoid the danger, right? So if some of your brain is available, oh, for us, it always is, right? But your brain is receptive to that message. What happens when every single part of you is completely focused on the subject at hand? Well, then your brain's not available to deal with petty things. You have to shake him awake out of his reverie. And by the way, even today, the great sages, there are many stories of great sages who had surgery done without anesthesia because it said, just give me a subject in Torah to think about and I won't feel any pain. It's a real thing. But what's the struggle? Why do you have to work so hard to understand Torah? 
Why is Torah so difficult? The answer is that by default, humans and God are not compatible. By default. We start off life and there's a foreign God who is squatting in our heart. It's called the Yitzhahara. And there's a way that we look at the world that's just not compatible with God. And when we're overlaying Torah upon ourselves, we find it's problematic. It doesn't really click. Why? Because this is the pure truth, absolute truth of God, truth of God. And we're all corrupted. We're full of falsehoods. And that's why initially there's an incompatibility between us and Torah. We're flawed. We're fallible. God's perfect. His Torah is perfect. And those two don't really always mix perfectly. The objective of our interaction with Torah is to superimpose God's Torah upon us and to harmonize us with the will of God. The objective is to take our intellect and upgrade it to be akin to divine intellect. Rava was struggling. He was toiling because he did not understand the will of God. That's by design. Rava, the greatest sage of the Talmud, is a human. How could he try to understand the will of God? But that's what Torah is all about. It's acclimating and harmonizing our mind to God's mind. comes along the heretic, the Sadducee, and says, you guys are just an impetuous people. You should have asked what's in it. You are the same as the nation that said, we will do and we will listen. And we asked, what's the connection? If you think about it for a second, you have to be, it's a little bit of a deep point. The nation is told, we will, they say we will do and we will listen. This is not just an act of faith. What they're saying is we know that if we inspect it, it's not going to be compatible with us. We know that because it comes from God and we're fallible, flawed humans. And therefore we want to accept it and we want it. We'll figure out the details later. But if we ask to inspect it first, it's not going to be compatible. There's a tacit, implicit acknowledgement of the incompatibility of Torah with us when we say we will do and we will listen. Don't tell us what's in it because we know, we know it won't, it won't work with our existing self. But we want to harmonize with God and therefore we will do it. We're going to do it. We're going to change ourselves. Comes along this Sadducee and he says, Rava, why are you working so hard? If it makes sense, great. If not, discard it. Simple. How do you how do you interact with Torah? If it makes sense, if it works right away, then that's it. Then you accept it. If not, then just discard it. You should have to work so hard. Does it click? Does it not click? Simple. In that world, maybe you'll end up with seven mitzvahs. That's it. But you'll remain a flawed human. Rava is working so hard because he's toiling, struggling in the Torah. Because he's trying to change his intellect and upgrade his intellect to be harmonious, to fit with Torah. 
when the Jewish people said, we will do and we will listen, God said, this is a secret of the angels. What's the secret? The secret is that we're understanding the nature and the essence of Torah. And we're understanding that it's a divine Torah that is, by definition, beyond human understanding. And the only way that we can connect to it is if we, like the angels, we change ourselves and make ourselves elevated to the degree that we can transcend and change ourselves to be in line with God's Torah. What an amazing idea, courtesy of Rava. A fascinating conversation between Rava and the Sadducee, Rava and the heretic. I think it's a deep idea to take with us as we engage in this festival. And just think about it. Of all of humanity, there's one nation that we said, we want to do, we want to be ready to accept what you want of us. We will do and we will listen. And by the way, I would posit, I would posit, that the reason why we had to spend 400 years suffering as slaves in a foreign land was only so that when this is presented to us, do you want the Torah or not? We would say, Na'asev Nishma. The Midrash tells us, of course, that God offered the Torah to every nation. And they all said, what's in it? 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 But we said, we will do and we will listen. Why? The answer to that is, because we came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they didn't. And we spent hundreds of years as total slaves to Pharaoh, and they didn't. Those two qualities created the nation that can say we will do and we will listen. We're committed to God 100%, like Abraham. And we're committed, even though it's against what our will is, we're going to be a slave to God like we were slaves to Pharaoh. We said it. We became really like angels. We achieved this peak experience never before experienced by any other nation. And till today, we still have the Torah given to us by all the, by the Almighty. What an amazing thing. 3,300 years later, we haven't changed a single letter in the Torah. We haven't changed any part of the oral Torah. We're still living by the rules given to us from God directly via Moshe, the vetted prophet, the prophet that we ourselves experience prophecy alongside him at Sinai. We're still today following the word of God. May we all merit to have an incredible festival of Shavuos to accept the Torah with joy and to be forever changed by the experience of taking a human and harmonizing the will of the human with the will of God. As always, my email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com. An amazing festival for all of y'all. I'm looking forward to hearing your questions, your comments, and your feedback.